It's good to be with you. I uh, grew up in a very musical family. I would uh, go on the weekends and sometimes for a week in the summertime to stay with my grandparents and they were very musically gifted people. Uh, they were cotton mill workers and they had uh, a lot of friends from the mill that were equally gifted and we would sit up until one in the morning uh, playing uh, a combination of gospel songs and uh, Hank Williams songs. Um, so that's the outlaw country bit. Um, I grew up on Hank Williams and uh, Charles Wesley, so that's a sort of window, <laughs> that's a window into my soul um, for what it's worth. Actually, a funny story, I uh, was in a meeting in Memphis uh, last week. Uh, my assistant, uh, administrative assistant Milton Kraft is here uh, this week. He's in the back. Uh, he's ducking. Um, actually, he's raising his hand. Everybody say hey to Milton. Milton was in this meeting and uh, my, my phone started going crazy. I mean, it was, you know, text message after text message. And this was with Maxie Dunham and Shane Stanford. And this is like the lead team at Christ United Methodist where Asbury Memphis is located. And and uh, so I finally take my phone out of my pocket. You know, it's vibrating and it won't stop. And it's my wife. Uh, she's blowing my phone up uh, because Merle Haggard had died. Um, <clears throat> so I stopped the meeting and I said, uh, well, actually, I didn't really stop the meeting. I, I think someone asked me, you know, is everything okay? Because they, they saw the color leave my face, you know. And, uh, and I said, well, I said, uh, just, I'm afraid I got some bad news. I said, uh, Merle Haggard has died. And Maxie looked at me and said, no. He said, I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I bring you greetings uh, from Maxie. Someday I may write a systematic theology uh, out of outlaw country music. It'll be a three-volume work, Sin, Volume 1, Suffering, Volume 2, and Longing for Salvation, Volume 3. <laughs> In our text this morning, uh, we find the disciples uh, on the other side of the resurrection. Uh, when we finish the book of Luke, uh, there's a... There's a there's a, a line at the end of the book of, the, of Luke that they're just so overwhelmed with joy that they can't stop worshiping God. They're worshiping in the temple every day. I've always thought that, that you know, that's pretty much how I would respond if, uh, if I had been there, right? I mean, you, you, you meet the risen Lord. Uh, this is going to be cause for great worship and joy. Then we, we turn over to uh, the book of Acts, and you get a sense a little bit that maybe things are starting to calm down a bit. And, uh, and of course, we know in hindsight where we're headed. Uh, we know what's just around the corner. And the Lord himself knows what's around the corner. He knows that he is about to leave them. We are only a few days from the ascension of our Lord so the disciples are in a kind of in-between season. They are halfway to Pentecost. And the Lord tells them that they 
are to do one thing when he leaves. They are to wait for the one that will come. That's where we are today in the Christian calendar. The glory and the joy and the surprise of Easter is behind us. And we're waiting for Pentecost. We'll come back to the disciples in a few minutes. What I want to do now is focus for just a little bit on this theme of waiting. I don't know anybody who likes to wait. I certainly don't like to wait. In fact, if my wife were here, she'd tell you that waiting drives me crazy. Have you ever been in a restaurant when you've had, you're given one of those uh, pagers and so you have to wait in the, in the little lobby area with a lot of other people. Maybe it takes half an hour to get your table. Right. You've been there? And, in, and I've got three little kids, right? So that makes it worse because they're crawling all over everybody. You finally get your table and then you get to wait some more. And you sort of watch as servers go by, and here comes another one, and they're going to this table and that table, every table but your table. Have you been there? (laughs) And I, I have to tell you, I don't do well in that situation. I don't like to wait. And so it won't be very long and I start trying to grab the servers as they're going by, you know, and my wife's embarrassed, you know, honey, stop that. You know, they'll be here in a minute. I'm like, it's already been 10 minutes, right? And this is on top of the 40 minutes that we've already waited. You know, and then uh, they come by, find, or you, you know how this goes, you know. Well, then later in the meal, you know, you're thirsty, right? because your, your glass has been empty for, you know, 20 minutes, right? <clears throat> and I, I just get so impatient. And I finally reach a point where, I, and I've done this, and, and, and it, it drives my wife crazy, where I, I just get up, if it's, you know, a, a restaurant where I can do this, and I walk over to the wait station with my glass, and if someone's there, I'll ask them if they can get me something to drink. Or if no one's there, I'll just <laughs> help myself. <laughs> I reach a point where I just say, you know, I'm sick of waiting on people. And I help myself. Something similar happens to me, has happened to me over the years uh, when I get stuck in a traffic jam on the interstate. Have you been there? After about 40 minutes of not moving, I start to get out the GPS, you know, or the, you know, I start to get my phone. I'm I'm looking for some kind of alternative route. How far is the next exit? Maybe I can make it on the emergency lane, right? You know, and and maybe the police won't see me. I'm going to tell you a true story. I'm not proud of this. My wife and I, you notice how she keeps showing up, Um, we were vacationing one time in Hot Springs, Arkansas. This was years ago. I've grown up since then. 
Uh, we were vacationing in Hot Springs. We were living in Texas, so this was 20 years ago. Uh, and we were getting on the interstate to go back to Dallas, and uh, there was just this horrendous traffic jam right as we came over a hill. And I saw it, and I thought, oh, no, you know. Well, just, I mean, we were only 200 yards past the exit ramp. Being the impatient person that I am, I looked around, I didn't see the police, and so I just eased the car into the emergency lane. I've grown up since then, dropped it in reverse, and backed up to the exit ramp. And right about the time I got to the exit, you know the rest of the story. Here come the blue lights, and I got a ticket for that little stunt. And then there's the grocery store. I have the worst luck in grocery stores. If you, you don't ever shop for groceries with me because I will always pick the worst possible line. It doesn't matter how short the line is. It doesn't matter how few items are on the, the little belt. Whatever line I get in will always take the longest. You start to you get the sense that maybe God's trying to teach me something, right? There was one time when, uh, and this will show you that I've been maturing over the years. Uh, a few years ago, I was in, I got in a line. There was only one person in the line. She had about ten items. I thought this is going to go quickly, you know. And I think I had like two things, right? Because that's how I, I. Speaking of my wife, it drives her nuts, right? I I, I go to the grocery store for one item, right? <laughs> Every time I'll come home with one item. She's like, "You were at the grocery store?" <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like. Why didn't you tell me? Because I'd have been there a lot longer, right? So I go in, I get my item, I get behind this this lady in line, and what happens? You know what happens. She gets out the coupons. Now, when they get the coupons out, especially when it's a big stack of coupons and they begin to sort through, they don't even know where the right coupons are, right? They're looking through 100 coupons. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And she's only got 10. It was all I could do not to say, ma'am, if you'll put those away, I'll gladly pay your bill. If we could just get on with this. I sometimes feel like I spend half my life waiting. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You spend half your life as students waiting on professors to post our syllabi and degrade your papers. What's true of my everyday life is also true of my life in the church. I sometimes feel like I spend half my life waiting on God to show up and revive the church. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been in churches. Maybe you are in churches now. You've served churches that have been dead for so long, no one can remember. 
the last time that God showed up in an undeniable way. No one can remember the last time that someone was dramatically converted to Jesus. And so we long for God to show up. I uh, preached a sermon one time. A, a student of mine at United Theological Seminary invited me to come and preach at his church, and he was serving one of these United Methodist churches uh, that was sort of a suburban church, but it was uh, a dying church, so to speak. It was a, a fairly large sanctuary, and it was very empty that Sunday morning. Uh, and, and it was one of it was that kind of emptiness that everyone feels and knows, and no one wants to talk about. And after the service was over, an elderly woman uh, came up to me and took my hand, and she apologized to me uh, that there weren't more people there to hear my message. And then she looked in my eye and said, it wasn't always like this. And then she kept walking. I'll never forget that. And then there's my own spiritual life, the inner life of my heart and my soul. I sometimes feel like I spend half my life waiting for God to show up and renew me. I think some of you know what I'm talking about here too. You've been through seasons when you don't sense the presence of God around you or in you, when you don't hear God speaking directly to you. It can be disorienting, to say the least. When we find ourselves in a spiritual wasteland, whether that wasteland is a church or the inner recesses of our hearts, our knee-jerk response is to help ourselves. It is to take it upon ourselves to renew the church or to fill the void in our hearts caused by God's absence and silence. We Wesleyan types are especially prone to want to take matters into our own hands. We are revivalists at heart. We are renewalists. It's what we do. So we want to get about the business, the work of renewing the church and ultimately transforming the world. In these moments when we get tired of waiting on God, I think we have two tendencies. I think we tend to do two things. On the one hand, some of us try to turn back the clock. We look to some past golden age in the life of the church, and we think to ourselves, if we just do what Wesley did, back there in those early days at Oxford. Or maybe if we would just do what they did during the days of the great revival across the street at Asbury College, or do what some other people did in some period of church history when God showed up in an unmistakable way. We look to the past and we try to discern in it some magical formula that we can use to summon the deity. We do this in our spiritual lives too. When it's been too long since we've heard God speak to us, since we've sensed God's presence around us and in us, 
It's tempting to want to go back to some place where we once experienced God's presence in an unforgettable way. We think that if we could just get back to that place and do the things we did back then, God will surely break His silence and speak to us again. Holy Scripture warns us against this way of thinking about God. You remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, don't you? After God shows up in an unforgettable way and wipes the floor with the prophets of Baal, what does Elijah do? Well, first of all, Jezebel makes a threat on his life. And Elijah runs back to the mountain of God, to that place where God had shown up in the past in an unmistakable way. And when God finally shows up there again, what does God say to Elijah? Do you remember? What are you doing here? The God of Holy Scripture is not a house-trained deity who comes running every time we call his name. He is far more mysterious and unpredictable than that. Trying to duplicate the circumstances of God's appearing in the past is just one way that we take matters into our own hands. Some of us go in right the opposite direction. We assume that if God is not present here and now, we we need to give the church a total makeover. If the past isn't the solution, it must be the problem. And so we start imitating the megachurch up the street from us. Maybe if we just copy their methods and their music, God will come running to our church too. The God of Holy Scripture is not a house-trained deity that comes running every time we call. If anything, I suspect that the revival for which many of us now so desperately long, the revival of our churches, the revival of our hearts, will not come until we stop trying to take matters into our own hands. There are a handful of books that have changed the way I think about Holy Scripture. Books that have altered what I hear and what I see in the pages of the Bible. One of the most important is a book by a Jewish scholar named Israel Knoll. The book is called The Sanctuary of Silence. In The Sanctuary of Silence, Knoll shows that as you move through the Old Testament, the theme of God's hiddenness and God's silence becomes more and more pronounced. The good news is that if you find yourself in a church where God hasn't been heard from in a long time, or if maybe you haven't heard God speak or sensed God's presence in a long time, you are not alone. This is not the first time that the people of God have suffered through a prolonged period of divine hiding and divine silence. 
one of my favorite places to see this theme of divine hiding and silence is the book of Isaiah. Time and again, Isaiah says things like, surely you are a God who hides. And then there's that jarring passage in Isaiah 64. Do you remember what happens in Isaiah 64? It's actually one of my favorite passages in all of Holy Scripture. The people of Israel have come back from captivity. What are they doing? They're doing God's work. They're rebuilding the temple. They want to get about the business of worshiping God again. And what happens to them? Famine, disease, and death. They are ready to worship God, but God is nowhere to be found. And so what does Isaiah say? Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and get down here. And then in one of the most tantalizing verses in all of the Old Testament for translation purposes. Let me tell you the way the NRSV puts it. You hid your face from us and we sinned. It may be just about the boldest statement in all of Holy Scripture. As if you translate it that way, in that order, what Isaiah is saying is your people have turned their backs on you and are sinning and it's your fault because you're nowhere to be found. Elsewhere, this same Isaiah assures us Those who wait. Those who wait upon the Lord. You know the rest of it, don't you? Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I think it's important to hear a verse like that, very much with chapter 64 in the back of your mind. It's when you, when you keep the situation in mind that that verse gets really powerful. Isaiah counsels the people of God to wait, to wait upon the Lord and assures them that if they do, they will walk and not grow weary. Now this brings me back to the disciples. They are halfway to Pentecost. In just a few days, they will lose sight of the risen Lord. They will no longer be able to hear His voice. And after He is gone from their midst, they will have no choice but to wait for the One who is coming. But as the great pietist theologian Christoph Blumhardt reminds us, there is action in waiting. 
especially when we are waiting upon the Lord. I'm wondering if some of you are halfway to Pentecost this morning. If it's been a while since you've heard from God or since God's presence. If it's been a while since God has shown up in a powerful way in your churches. Take heart. There is something you can do. You can wait. You can wait upon the Lord. I can't tell you this morning when or how God will show up next. In the church or in your own heart. I can't tell you where God will show up. What I can tell you is that the God of Holy Scripture is always on the way. The God of Holy Scripture is always coming. He is coming for you. He is coming for me. He is coming for His church. He is coming to redeem and renew the face of creation. We do not know the day or hour of His arrival but he is on his way. Our only job is to be ready. And we do that. We ready ourselves for his arrival by waiting. We wait in prayer and we wait at the Lord's table.